When we built our home in Argentina, I realized how important is the foundation. In reality, our building had four stories. On the ground floor, our church built a hall for the meetings of the church. Our home was on the next floor. And then a pastoral colleague built a home for his family on the next floor, on the third floor, and our oldest daughter and her family built on the fourth. I still remember the enormous holes that were dug to pour in all the cement and, and uh, uh, iron that went down to support the building. And I got the impression that after all the truckload after truckload of concrete that went into those foundations, that all my money was going down the hole, literally. And I knew that when it was finished, no one would see what was there. I think sometimes we put too much attention into what is visible when we should be giving more attention to the foundation. The foundation of marriage is much more important than our personal choices, our feelings, the romance, the pleasure, the location where we will live, and so on. Those are all secondary matters. What's most important is to build our marriage on a solid foundation that will last a lifetime. Um, I don't know how many of you have had the opportunity to build your home. As I think back, um, shortly after we were married, we had one daughter. We built our first home. That is, the, the home we chose and decided to build. And then in Argentina, many years later, we built a home, the one I just mentioned. And in Miami, about 14 years ago, we built another home. When you build successive homes, uh, you learn to be more realistic. Uh, I remember when we built a home in Argentina, we built a lot of big sliding doors. And I didn't realize until after we were in there that all those walls taken up with sliding doors made it very difficult to get the furniture in that you needed. You kind of used up a whole wall just for windows. Nice to have all that light. But what I'm, what I'm saying is um, we, we need to learn, if we're going to build, that you've got to build a place that's habitable, that you're going to be happy with once you're there. And that's the way it is with building a family. We've got to build the right foundation and then build properly. I'd like to suggest that when it comes to building a marriage, it all begins in Genesis. I'm going to go back to Genesis chapter 2 and read verse 18 and then verses 21 to 25. This is from the New American Standard Bible. A serious study of marriage requires us to begin there with Genesis, uh, where the initiation of the marriage relationship is narrated. And I read, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. And the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. 
For this cause a man shall leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and were not ashamed. Now this key text provides us with six basic principles regarding marriage that I want to mention now. First of all, human beings are essentially social creatures. God made both the man and the woman in such a way that they could not be complete alone. This is not limited to the marriage relationship. But we were not made to live as hermits. We were not made to live in solitude. As a matter of fact, one of the most terrible punishments that is meted out against criminals who are incorrigible and difficult to manage in a prison is solitary confinement. And people who have been in solitary confinement say it's one of the worst punishments they can, they can go through. No one to talk to, no one around, no one, nothing to read, just all alone with yourself and your thoughts. Uh, people were made to be sociable, and we need to learn to be sociable. And if anything will oblige us to be sociable, it's marriage. Every human being needs fellowship, intimacy companionship. That's the reason for God's declaration. It is not good for the man to be alone. This is the reality of the human constitution. Human realization depends upon an adequate social framework. And the second uh, premise that we find here in this passage that I've just read is this. God is the author of the marriage bond. Marriage didn't just happen. It's going to say Marriage didn't just happen. Hmm? That's the one. Is that it? Marriage didn't just happen. It was designed by God. It was he who determined its guidelines and took the initiative to bring it about. He put Adam to sleep and took out of him what was necessary to make the woman. And then he presented her to him. Thus it all happened by his sovereign grace and will and was planned with their welfare in mind. And the third principle is the, that the full realization of marriage depends upon the disposition to alter the relationship with the parents of the bride and groom for the purpose of forming a new home and family. For this cause, the scripture says, a man shall leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Uh, I suppose all of us are familiar with some cases where um, the bride or the groom have real difficulty separating from their parents. Um, sometimes they become so dependent upon their parents that uh, they go through rather considerable trauma in separating, but it's essential. It's the only way you can start a new family is to separate from the former family. This involves the decision to assume the pertinent relationship and the responsibilities and make the corresponding adjustments. It especially implies the commitment of the man to govern and care for the new family. If he does not accept this responsibility, the home cannot achieve its complete purpose. Sometimes when we talk about governing, the idea is communicated or implied that uh, you're the boss. 
Governing is, is very different from just being the boss. It means being sure that things run properly, that the home is functional, and that the people involved get along with each other, that there's purpose in it all, that there's order, all that is involved in government. The fourth principle that we need to underline here is that the marriage union is definitive, that is to say it's final, and it's permanent. They shall become one flesh, the scripture tells us. Jesus added a further clarification in the gospel when he said the two shall become one flesh. Consequently, they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. I've heard people who uh, take this verse and apply it in a rather subjective way, implying that some marriages were not made by God and others were. The scripture doesn't allow us that kind of interpretation. What the Lord is telling us here in the scripture, both in Genesis and in the gospel, is that when a man and a woman join their lives in marriage, God registers it. In that sense, God participates. And to presume that some marriages were joined by God and others were not joined by God, I'm talking about legitimate marriages, is to uh, twist the whole scripture. I mention this because I had a very close friend for many years that I knew when both of us were single. This is going back a long way because I've been married 53 years. And uh, uh, I remember receiving uh, a wedding invitation uh, to uh, his wedding. <coughs> it, the wedding invitation was full of scriptures. Both of them had been uh, Christians for quite some time, were wholly dedicated to the Lord. And they had great hopes for their home and family. They eventually had four children. I visited them from Argentina later on, many years later, when their children were growing up. Some were already in their teens. And I um, uh, was impressed by their dedication to the Lord after that. Some years later, I received a letter from him uh, with the audacity to say that um, he and his wife were breaking up because they had come to the realization, he came to the realization, that their marriage was not made in God. I thought, what a preposterous conclusion to come to. And I remember within a year or two, I had an opportunity to see him and although I had written him and expressed to him my objection, because we had been so close for so many years, I told him, I said, um, I need to talk with you, and I need to clarify to you exactly what my response is to uh, your decision. We met in a cafe, and I listened to him. I heard all of his argument, which to me sounded utterly spacious and without any foundation. And I said to him, I want you to understand that when you sent me that invitation and later on when I knew your family, I rejoiced in the fact that you were both Christians, you were making steps forward in your commitment to the Lord. And now you have the audacity to tell me it wasn't made in God. I said, you're totally wrong. You have broken a covenant that the Lord has sealed, and you're in, in deep trouble with the Lord because of that. I don't remember if at that time or shortly thereafter he married again, and I heard later that that marriage fell on the rocks, 
And I don't know what happened to the man after that, because I told him, I said, I want you to understand that I'm breaking fellowship with you. I don't consider you my brother in the Lord after this, because you have gone very clearly and rebelliously against counsel. I knew that others, just like I, had talked with him very sincerely, very calmly, but also very firmly about the terrible mistake he was doing. Um, when we read the scriptures, we need to take it at face value and not get involved in strange, subjective interpretations. There are two more principles I want to mention that, that come from Genesis. The fifth one is that God gave to the husband the principal responsibility for conducting the home. Now, that's not to say he has the only responsibility, because that's not true. He and his wife are both responsible. But since God gave the man the responsibility to be the head of his, of his wife and to govern the home, he has the major responsibility. And this is implied by the fact that God first made the man. We need to understand Paul's argument in 1 Timothy 2.13. And uh, it's explicitly stated by God uh, that man was more responsible because he made the woman to be a helper suitable for him. Yet in no way does it imply that the husband can act as a tyrant or despot without facing serious consequences. God does not give the husband the right to ignore his responsibility nor to delegate it to someone else. It's his responsibility. I've faced many marriages where the woman seemed to be stronger, maybe even had more business acumen than her husband. And I said to them, you know, this is not going to function well until the husband assumes his responsibility. It doesn't matter to me who manages the money. It doesn't matter to me who does different things. But the husband has got to assume his responsibility because God holds him responsible. That's the basic reason. And the final principle that we see in this scripture is uh, that the marriage bond implies an intimacy without secrets, without reservations, and with respect and reverence for each other. This is seen in the passage that says, the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Uh, this nakedness refers, I mean, implies complete vulnerability. When you're naked, you can't hide anything. You're completely known. Everything is obvious, it's visible. And there's a principle there that in marriage, that we can't hide anything from each other. I always counsel uh, people who are to be married, be completely transparent before you get married, so that after you're married, neither of you discovers any unsavory secrets about the other, or things that are going to be bring shame to you. It's very important that we understand that in marriage we're completely vulnerable to each other. No one can do us more harm than a person who knows us completely. And more harm than a person who has loved us completely. Um, vulnerability in marriage is essential to the kind of union that God has established in the marital union. That we can't escape vulnerability. Uh, we cannot be completely defensive with each other. Husband and wife are vulnerable. Uh, a word, a gesture, an expression, 
sort of a uh, silence seeks to communicate so much just because we're totally vulnerable to each other. None of us are as vulnerable to anybody else as to our own spouse. Concerning this fact, the Apostle Paul clarifies the responsibilities of both husband and wife in 1 Corinthians 7, 3 to 5, in Ephesians 5, 21 to 29, and in Colossians 3, 18 to 19. Marriage is based on the covenant. The Genesis account reveals that marriage is a covenant relationship. And not, not just between two persons, but between three. God is not absent from any legitimate marriage. This marriage is within the creational order of things. I think it helps to understand that some things were done under the redemptive order. Salvation, forgiveness, all part of the redemptive order. What God uh, deals with us about in our relationship with him and with each other is under, the, under his redemptive uh, mandate. But some things were done under the creation mandate before man was involved in sin. And marriage is one of the things. So that whether you were married by a minister or not, you can be legitimately married in the sight of God, and God is part of that marriage. doesn't matter whether it's between Buddhists or Muslims or atheists. God registers that marriage, and that marriage is legitimate. Understanding that um, the qualifications, the requisites, were met for marriage in the first place. This reality is specified in the words of Jesus with reference to the marriage bond. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. The concept behind this is that God registers the solemn vows and the commitment expressed by the man and the woman at the initiation of their marriage. From that point forward, the Bible deals with marriage as an indissoluble relationship. Neither infidelity nor physical separation are valid motives to conclude the commitment to which both initially agreed. Perhaps no story in the Scripture are more poignant than that of Hosea, whom uh, God told to marry a woman of loose morals, and he had to go and bring her back from her prostitution and even buy her back from slavery. But he didn't divorce her, he brought her back. He was the mother of their children. And all this was to illustrate God's love for his people. As you read the scriptures, we don't find a very good record of God's people. Israel in the Old Testament and often the church in the New. There's lots of flaws. Um, apparently, the Lord got a long way to go with us to get us a place where we were without spot or wrinkle. But what I'm getting at is that even in, in the midst of all those flaws, God doesn't cast us off. He's after us. He's working with us. If you haven't read that epic poem, The Hound of Heaven, you should get it and read it. It's one of the most fascinating poems I ever read in my life. It's about the Holy Spirit. He's the hound of heaven who just runs us down and traces us through all the labyrinthine experiences of our lives until we finally see there's no escape and we surrender. A very fascinating poem.
From that point forward, that is to say, from the initiation of a marriage, the Bible deals with marriage as an indissoluble relationship. Dr. Ed Wheat, in his book with the title Love Life for Every Married Couple, comments on Jesus' response to the question of the Pharisees on divorce. And I'm going to quote three or four paragraphs from that book, uh, which reveals to us three important facts concerning our basic understanding of marriage. First of all, God himself united the husband and the wife. A man and a woman marry on their own decision. However, when they do so, God places a yoke upon them both so that the two individuals become one. Uh, I found it interesting to discover that in the Spanish language, the word for spouse is conjuge, which comes from two words. One is con, which means with, and yuge or yugo, which means yoke. So it's uh, two people under one yoke. It's interesting that the, the person who's in the yoke with me is my spouse. Um, rather uh, illustrative uh, indication of our relationship. We're in the yoke together. If you've ever seen two oxen or two cows under a yoke, you know that there's no escape. You're, you're in that together. Where, wherever one goes, the other one goes too. And uh, they'll often unite a young uh, ox with an older, experienced ox for the younger one to get the experience and know how to pull the, the cart or the uh, farming equipment behind. Young oak will, young ox, me, will often uh, suffer under that yoke until his uh, neck and his shoulders are injured, but he's got to learn under the yoke. Living under a yoke is not easy, but it's essential if we're going to move together. Uh, now another paragraph from Ed Wheat's book. From the divine point of view, marriage is an indissoluble union, he says, with which not even all the courts of earth can dissolve. How can a piece of paper change what God himself did? Only death can dissolve the marriage bond. Three, an attempt by any individual to separate what God himself united is an act of arrogant defiance against God's express will. Anyone who decides to do that must suffer in his life the consequences of such action. In a word, Jesus said to those who were concerned to find the cause for divorce that their emphasis was completely wrong. What is important in God's eyes, both then and now, is the permanence of the marital union and that we honor this permanence in our personal commitment. That's the end of every statement. Considering that, then that marriage is for a lifetime, wherein the person at my side is to be my companion until one of us dies, we should consider this union and the welfare of our marriage in a serious and responsible manner. This is not a trial run. We're not doing an experiment. This is until death separates us. No valid marriage can be based on luck or chance to find happiness and harmony. This requires wisdom and dedication, discipline and diligence, goodwill and a commitment to serve one another. 
A few years ago, I read a, a very interesting and marvelous testimony in Christianity Today by Robert McQuilkin, who was for many years president of Columbia Bible College in Columbia, South Carolina. A man, a, man, a godly man who was respected by so many. Um, it was discovered that his wife, who was a very popular radio personality, she had her own radio program and was often called upon to speak to women's groups, was coming down with Alzheimer's. Um, at the beginning, they only noticed that the, her memory would fail slightly, and then it would fail more and more. And um, the problem arose when it was discovered that she was repeating herself on a radio broadcast, and consequently they had to shut down the radio broadcast. Uh, her condition worsened in spite of all that they could do to try to help, uh, to the point where she became quite infantile in her uh, actions, unable to carry on with the responsibilities in the home. And she would even um, act like a small child when he would leave for the office and their, their home was on the campus of Columbia uh, Bible College. Uh, she would follow him like a child to his office. Some of his close friends suggested that uh, Dr. McQuilkin uh, put her in a home where she could be cared for adequately, as often happens with um, people who have Alzheimer's. Dr. McQuilkin, remembering his solemn vow in sickness or in health, for better or for worse, decided that it was his responsibility to care for her as long as he could. So he decided he would resign the presidency of Columbia Bible College and simply dedicate himself to care for his wife. He did so until it was impossible to do so any longer. Perhaps a year or two later, I read another testimony by him, telling about some of the experiences they had had in the uh, months to follow uh, that first testimony that I read in Christianity Today. And uh, he told, uh, it was a confession in a sense, because he told how that uh, sometimes she was, she was so out of it, so unaware of what she was doing, what was going on, that uh, he had to um, change her just like a baby, to care for her. And sometimes while he was in the midst of changing her, she'd mess up herself again. And at one point, he got a little aggravated and slapped her leg. And then he felt under such terrible conviction that he realized that it wasn't her responsibility. But when I read that, I was so deeply moved. Because I thought, well, here, here are people well up in age. Uh, perhaps he could have easily resolved the issue by putting her in a home. And he understood his marriage vows as responsible in that situation, and he chose to care for her. Um, many others who read that testimony could not help but admire such commitment, such dedication in a situation like that. I think it's the sort of thing that all of us at some point might fear, and yet all of us have got to realize uh, we have a solemn responsibility. Making a vow is no light thing. And God sees that. I want to especially emphasize two essential elements in marriage. Mutual respect 
and communication. Many books have been written on these two subjects, so I'll only touch on some guidelines which we hope will help and encourage you in conducting your marriage for God's glory. Let's talk about mutual respect. I'm going to suggest four guidelines here. First of all, accept your spouse just as he or she is. Don't try to change your spouse to suit you better. Each human being has dignity because he was created in God's image. He or she will certainly change in time, but at his or her own pace and style. Learn to appreciate the other's, other's personality, the way he or she is that is different from yourself. Um, my wife and I, just like every other marriage, had some difficulty with this because I wanted to make her over to suit me in every detail. She wanted to make me over to suit her in every detail. And then we both realized after time it doesn't work that way. It just doesn't happen. Um, often I remember uh, Bob Mumford years ago giving a testimony about him and his wife, who was of German origin. He mentioned that as an interesting point. He said that uh, he thought that when they got married, they would fit like two spoons, one nested into the other uh, with some ease. And he said, in, in fact, when, after they married, he found it like, like they were two bare electric wires that every time they touched it, was, sparks would fly. And he said they went through that sort of uh, clash for a long time until he realized that God had made one for the other, and that's why they were both different. And so he said one day he realized that what had to happen was they had to be like two gears that mesh, and after they mesh, they function well. Um, since then, in our own experience, I've come to the very clear realization that my wife is all that I need. She is what I don't have and cannot produce. And she's come to see that I am the complement for her. Of course, this is not a perfect relationship. No marriage is a perfect relationship. Um, when I think about our relationship with Jesus Christ, it's not what it might be and what should be, but it's not what it was either. We've come a long way, baby. <laughs> One of the speakers said today, and um, in in marriage, we have a long way to go. And when we start out, there's a lot to learn. But uh, we need to learn to fit in with each other and work together. As a matter of fact, it's usually the case that when a man and a woman are attracted to each other, it's because they are different as, as opposite poles. And uh, then when they get married, those differences cause clashes. And I try to help people who are going through problems like that to realize that those differences are what originally attracted them. She had what the man didn't have. He had what she needed. And uh, then after they're married, they've got to learn to accept that reality, live with that reality. The second point I want to make about um, this matter of uh, mutual respect is that we need to leave space for our spouse. Uh, I refer to this as a margin of grace for the development of his or her own personality. Uh, don't try to make all the plans for your wife or for your husband. Give them room. 
encourage their development. Don't stand in the way. Um, I think when we give up trying to make them like ourselves, uh, we'll begin to realize that they need some space. They need some time just to be themselves. Uh, when we marry each other, we bring our own personality into the situation. And while we are certainly flawed in many ways, we need to first of all accept each other and then allow each other to develop um, as God works in their lives. Another point is that we need to understand the value and the importance of occasional separation. Don't try to fill the other's schedule to suit yourself. Absence brings tenderness to the heart. You probably heard the little uh, line of poetry, absence makes the heart grow fonder, but too much absence makes it wander. And uh, I remember uh, in the course of our marriage, I have often had to be away for sometimes for several weeks. And um, my wife and I have had a, a very loving relationship over these years, and I can only say that those absences increase our sense of need for each other and attraction to each other, and neither of us has ever been unfaithful to the other. But I, as I would travel elsewhere, I would write her uh, romantic letters. And uh, occasionally she would write me more romantic letters. I was a more romantic, I think, at least in the correspondence. One day after I'd been gone for several weeks, she wrote back, this is before email was in style. Now we have almost instant communication, even if you double the phone with the go of email. But uh, I had written her with some romantic expressions, and she wrote me back that she was reading my letters aloud to our children. And I grabbed my phone and said, oh, what did I say? <laughs> and, uh, and then she went on to say, she said, I think it's very important <coughs> for our children to understand how we love each other, how we care for each other. I'm sure that's true. As I think back upon my own parents, I uh, am reminded many times of how my father so devotedly and dearly loved my mother. I've already stated here that uh, I never heard him raise his voice to her. They would have their differences like any married couple would. But he never dreamed of laying a hand upon her. It was it was just not in in him to do that. He was a he was a man almost six feet tall. He was he was very strong and and he was a, quite a disciplinarian. But he would never discipline his wife. He would discipline the children. He taught us to respect authority. And if we ever reacted to mom's instructions in his presence, he made us to know it in no uncertain terms that that was not acceptable. But we always were aware that um, they had deep love and devotion for each other. And I think that uh, all of the children came by. Naturally, my sister is the only one who's still single. She never married. But my brother and I have had a, a very happy marriage, each of us. And each of us had four children, all of which are grown now. Um, and I think it's largely due to the experience we have now at home with our own parents. So I think my wife was very wise to do that. It scared me a little bit, but uh, I'm sure that she did the right thing. I'm sure she would not have shared anything that would have been uh, scandalous in any way. 
The third point I want to mention about mutual respect is that we need to understand the value and the, well, I mentioned that, the importance of separation. The fourth thing, respect the other's right to privacy. Respect the other's choices in lifestyle. I get the feeling sometimes that, um, especially with men, uh, especially in a Latin culture where there's so much of a macho mentality, that men crowd their wives too much. And it's almost as if their wives are considered their property. No matter how uh, devoted we are to each other, no matter how we love each other, uh, we cannot ever properly consider the other as our property. We are one. But we are one to respect mutually. And I think that um, it's very important for us, us to understand that uh, the wife has the right to be respected by her husband. The husband has the right to be respected by his wife. Let's don't ever lose that respect. Even when there are differences, even when there are, are sometimes, there's sometimes tension and the friction, uh, let's understand that we should not go to the point of lacking respect. There's a lot of people that I've had differences with, but I try to always bear in mind that if they merit my respect, even with the differences. My father taught me a lot in that respect. Dad was a, a very good uh, manager uh, during his many late years before retirement. He was production superintendent in a pneumatic tool company in Houston, Texas. And uh, under his oversight, they never had a strike because he seemed to always have a way about helping capital and labor come to terms with each other so that they worked out an understanding before the friction produced a break. And so they never had a strike all those years. He faced a lot of friction between laborers, between management and labor, but uh, he was always able to work it out. And I think he, he communicated a lot of that to us. It's something we have to learn. Nobody's born with that. But we can learn to be respectful of the other's dignity and privacy. Let's talk about communication in marriage. I'd like to suggest six things here I have in my notes. Recognize the need to converse together without hurry, without nervousness, and without interruptions. Um, my wife used to feel that she always found me so busy that I wasn't ready to talk. And then she, would, she wouldn't say anything, but she would build up this tension inside until she would explode in some way. Now, when I say explode, I don't mean it was a terrible explosion, but, but she would express aggravation, uh, and uh, her nerves were altered. And I would say, Listen, I want you to understand something. I'm always ready to give you time. And if I'm busy, I will simply tell you, as soon as I get through with this, we'll talk. I do want to work with you. I want to help you. So all that tension is gone now because we came to understand each other. And whenever she feels that we need to talk together, she'll tell me, when you get a minute, we need to have a conversation about this or that or the other. I say, uh, we can do it this evening. Or uh, as soon as I finish what I'm doing here, we can sit down and talk. And we talk and we listen. Now, when, when we converse as husband and wife, it's very important to listen carefully. Nothing is more important in conversation 
and learning to listen. All of us have to learn to listen. I've often thought in, in seminaries and Bible schools, uh, all of us who are in the ministry learn to talk. But I've never, I've never heard of a course in the Bible school on how to listen. And yet I think it's one of the most important things in a Christian's life, uh, whether or not you're in the ministry, to learn to listen. And that means when you listen, you don't interrupt. Unless you want to ask a question or ask for a clarification. But I think I've seen husband and wife sometimes clash. And uh, when he brings out something that makes her feel accused, she said, and then you too, and then she throws something out at him. You can't talk that way. When, when one is dealing with something that is a problem, hear them out. And you can tell them, look, I have some things to talk to you about. We'll do that another time. Because it's very difficult to resolve several problems at once. Um, when I was young, I studied um, radio and television repair. And one of the things that they taught us was isolate the problem until you find out in what circuit the problem has occurred, and then deal with that. You can't solve everything at once. And when you've got a lot of problems at home or in the marriage, don't even try to solve all of them at once. Take the one that's most urgent, or the one that's easiest to resolve, and start there, and then work your way through one by one. But don't try to solve everything at once, and don't try to reciprocate at the same time. Take your time. It's going to take a while, but you can get through it. Another thing, control your emotions. Now, in speaking about controlling your emotions, I want to give you some suggestions. Think clearly before you say anything. Um, sometimes when women are upset, they're especially prone to cry. It can happen with men, but I, I've noticed women are more prone to do that. If you will think clearly what you want to say before you say it, it will help you to say it calmly. Think carefully what you want to say, and then speak in the most appropriate manner and with well-ordered sentences, as best you can. None of us is perfect, but we can do better than we have done. Thirdly, and I've already mentioned this, but I'll emphasize it again, learn to listen. Try to interpret your spouse with kindness and generosity. Ask if something is not clear. Speak one at a time and do not interrupt each other. Fourth, learn the love language of your spouse. Don't oblige him or her to speak your love language. I encourage you, as I said earlier today, to read Gary Chapman's book, The Five Love Languages. Have any of you read that book? It's very good. And uh, when you read that the first time, you discover that uh, love is expressed in many different ways. It is very possible that you and your spouse express it differently. Um, one of my granddaughters was telling me, we, we had a, um, what am I called, a little seminar. It was a very small thing with just a few people that were involved in a, in a home group. But one of my granddaughters and her husband were in the group, and she was saying how, what difficulty she had in understanding her husband because um, he reacted to things in different ways. And after this, this course, using that book, The Five Love Languages, she said, I understand now how he expresses love. He expresses love in service, and he loves to serve people. But he'll, he'll go away from home and stay away for hours just to help somebody else do his lawn or 
to fix the gutter or, or, or the water pipes or whatever. He's a, he's a terrific fix-it man. But his wife was expecting a bit more attention, and she had to realize that's the way he expresses love, interpret him in that way. Um, I know of several couples that have married who do not speak the same language. Um, a young man uh, came from the States to visit us in Argentina one summer. He was studying engineering. He's now got his PhD in engineering. And uh, uh, while there, he became interested in the young lady in our congregation. He knew very little Spanish, and she knew absolutely no English. Um, the courtship continued after he returned to the States, and eventually she came to the States to visit our daughter, who was a very close friend of hers. Well, on that occasion, we were able to visit with them, and uh, uh, shortly thereafter, he proposed marriage. So it was a very interesting thing to see how that developed, when the, they could hardly understand each other when they spoke, although he was making very serious efforts, and it has since developed great proficiency in the Spanish language. He talks Spanish like an Argentine now. I, I'm, I'm amazed. A very intelligent person, very committed. But... Um, during those years when they were developing the relationship and then even after getting married, it was not easy to communicate. You have to learn to speak the other's language if you're going to communicate effectively. And if your spouse speaks a different language, learn what it is and learn to communicate in that language. 